Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics. I'm really excited today to have Ellen Half Davis on the show. She's the CEO of Aparito, which is a technology company that focuses on patient-generated health data. They're working on a number of exciting clinical trials, uh, mainly focused in rare disease. Ellen's also an inspirational speaker. She's rode across the Atlantic. She's a career as a pediatric nurse, and, and the list goes on from there, rugby player. Um, so welcome to the show, Ellen. It's really great to have you. Before we get on to your work at Aparito, um, I, I'm also a rower, so I just wanted to ask, uh, I, couldn't, I just couldn't imagine how long it would take to row across the Atlantic. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was, uh, I guess it was one of those life-changing moments. Uh, my life prior to that had been uh, all around rugby in terms of my sports adventures. So for 10 years, I'd combined my uh, career as a children's nurse with playing premiership rugby at London Wasps and um, Welsh students squad and also the senior Welsh squads uh, getting uh, 13-8 caps. Um, and for 10 years, it had been sort of a great uh, combination. And then I was dropped from the Welsh skiing squad, went through a divorce and just decided that um, I would row across the Atlantic, which, um, you know, was was a sort of uh, brave decision, I guess, given that I'd never rowed before, never been out to sea before and and certainly didn't have the sponsorship money to fund the campaign at that time. Um, but it was a, a very life changing moment. And um very proud and pleased that I decided to do it. So, right. So, so you and, and a colleague, also, also a nurse, um, you, you, the two of you rode across together, right? And, and how long did it take? Yeah, so uh, Herd Ipsidu and I'd worked at Great Ormond Street Hospital together uh, for a few years. And we launched the campaign called Nautical Nurses. Um, so we took 77 days to row across. I mean, it was sort of 12 years ago now where... We were in the classic rowing boat and of course, you know, ocean rowing, like many other sports, has sort of become unrecognizable now in terms of the boat designs and that kind of thing. Uh, but at that time, um, yeah, it was it was quite and given that we were both complete novice rowers or sea goers, uh, we were quite uh, excited about the fact that we managed to get across. But more importantly, we'd also raised £190,000 for metabolic research at Great Ormond Street Hospital, which funded Dr. Emma Footet to do a PhD looking at the value of vitamin B6 in neonates with PNPO deficiency, a rare disease. Um, and uh, yeah, we guess we could have never guessed or anticipated um, that the value of, of the row could have contributed to that. Yeah, and, and I, we were discussing this earlier, but the the waterfall effect or the the knock-on effect that this can have of of starting a research program that might not have otherwise been funded and, and leading on from there, um, the, the impact can be many times what you all originally set out to raise. Yeah, definitely. It's like casting a stone and like really the rippling effect and, you know, went on to fund new formulation development, uh, EMA orphan designation and some protocol assistance. So we, yeah, we could have never imagined. And um, it was very, you know, exciting to see that our row, which was in some ways a sort of, you know, personal adventure had had that uh, impact too. Right. So, so then uh, I guess after you finished the row, you, you went back to your your normal life as a pediatric nurse and and you're working as part of clinical trials right in in primarily in rare disease 
Yeah, so for about six, seven years prior to the row, I'd been working in uh, a role looking after children recruited to clinical trials. So um, I guess in total, it was around 20 different clinical trials across four different therapeutic areas. Um, and I'd got to see firsthand the challenges of supporting patients through clinical trials in a way that actually leads to meaningful outcome. Um, and to be honest, after the row, I actually then went to work for the European Medicine Agency because the pediatric regulation uh, had been implemented. Um, and I, I really saw that as an opportunity to influence the clinical trial design before right. they even reached the patient. Um, because as I say, I, I'd had that firsthand experience um, of seeing the challenges of conducting clinical trials in pediatrics and rare diseases. So, so let's get into some of those challenges. What, what were the things that you observed back then, maybe that you, you tried to change with the EMA? And, and what are some of the challenges we still have today with, with clinical trials, especially in, in children? Yeah, I mean, as I say, it was sort of 18, 19 years ago now since that first clinical trial experience I had. And I would say that, you know, even today, the biggest challenge that we end having is selecting the right endpoint or outcome measure. Um, and that has so many different um, sort of long term or sort of, uh, you know, out implications from, from that first question of which outcome measure or endpoint to select. You know, on one level, if you don't select the right endpoints or outcome measures, it means that you then set yourself on a path to be constantly measuring the wrong thing. Um, and when that does not reflect what's important to the child and family, then, you know, the path just takes you further and further away from, from what's important. Um, secondly, I would say that unless you can find an outcome of, uh, or an endpoint assessment that sort of not time consuming, not painful, uh, not invasive, that is age appropriate and disease specific, then the quality of the data that you get is also impacted because the child or the patient's ability to comply with it, um, it impacts the data quality in that regard. Um, and then, you know, the third part, of course, is this patient centric point of view of dragging patients and families to hospitals that very often can be very long drives or long travels away um, and all the stresses that comes with that. Yeah. And so, so one of the examples I've heard you use before for an, a patient outcome as part of a clinical trial that's, that's pretty frequently used is the six-minute walk test in, in Duchenne muscular dystrophy and, and many other neuromuscular disorders. Would, would you mind just going into that example and and why that's maybe not the the, the best way of, of measuring progress uh, or, or or the I guess the the progression of symptoms of a child and, and whether a child is improving it. Yeah. So as we know, the six minute walk test was actually designed for adults with cardiovascular disease, um, and certainly not necessarily designed for children with neuromuscular diseases. So the concept of asking children to walk for six minutes up and down a twenty five meter lap. Um, is, is sort of bizarre from offset, really, particularly if you think that six minutes is a very long time to maintain a child's attention 
when they often have learning difficulties or some, you know, neuro involvement that affects their behavior, if you like. Um, but we also know that children can be trained by their parents to walk at a certain pace so that they meet certain inclusion criteria. They can be motivated to walk faster and, and further by paying them. And so, you know, that test doesn't have the value and certainly doesn't then reflect what's important to patients and family on a day-to-day life of living with the disease. So how, how do you see technology as, as helping this? What, what are you working on or what are other people working on to, to maybe do this differently? Yeah, the, the world of clinical trials really haven't, you know, changed um, in a way that we know that, um, you know, digital technology has completely transformed the way that we do every other aspects of our lives, but right. actually not the way that we evaluate uh, drug efficacy, effectiveness and provide care. And so, you know, we've, we've been able to collaborate with uh, the French company um, Cisnav in the development of their Actimayo wearable device is one example. Um, and, we, you know, we, we're working with quite a few other wearable devices as a means to see could they be one tool in the armory, if you like, or one piece of the jigsaw that can add, um, you know, the detail to the day-to-day life that these child children are, are living without causing too much burden and and sort of stress for them. Right. So maybe if if we think about the big picture for a second, could you paint paint me a picture of of how you would if you could start from scratch and and redo the way that clinical trials are done? You know, besides maybe you know replacing one thing with a wearable device, how would you remodel the whole system? What are the other pieces that 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 we could change to make this better and and ultimately improve the way that that we can get new drugs to help people? Yeah, you know, we've we've sort of heard the the word patient centric trials for quite some time now, but I I don't think we've you know really started implementing them. And for me, uh, you know, these are going to be this is going to require um, the you know the putting together of lots of different tools and enablers, and one of those is to consider decentralized or remote clinical trials. Now, obviously, there will be some drugs or some mechanism of action, such as gene therapy, that is inevitable that the child needs to you know, be hospitalized or, or attend some hospital visit. But actually, what we don't need to do is drag you know, children and families to hospitals to complete paper-based questionnaires. Right. And even at some times, we could uh, organize for nurses to visit the child at home to perform some tests um, and, and reduce the burden. So I strongly think that a uh, couple of the big changes are going to be a more patient-centric uh, clinical trial design with the option for patients to have a lot of these tests and, and, and assessments done remotely at home using things like wearables and videos and photos um, to capture important information in real time um, and that uh, that kind of uh, adaptive pathway based on those data 
analysis that will be sort of much more detailed and continuous will, will give us hopefully earlier access to medication um, in, a, in a safe way, but, you know, most importantly, an effective way. Yeah. And I guess another thing that I, that I can think of is, um, so I come from a rare disease genomics background and, and one of the big challenges in rare diseases is even getting a picture of what typical development looks like for a child with, with a, with a particular disorder. So you, you could also use your technology to understand what, you know, what is life likely to be like and, that I guess also gives you a better picture of whether the treatments are helping, right? Because you can establish a much richer baseline to say most children with this mutation develop in a certain way and, and treating them, um, you know, improves it or doesn't improve it in, in some kind of more specific way. Yeah. So I kind of describe it as the digital phenotype, if you like, we know that these diseases, even those with the same genotype, have got a very heterogeneous phenotype, both in presentation and in progression. Um, and that then obviously makes it really difficult to design the studies and select the right endpoint when you ha might have a multiple different, you know, multisystemic disease where not all aspects impact on every single child. So the way I see it is by developing these sort of digital phenotypes, so a description of what the patient's day-to-day -day, um, uh, picture looks like can then far better inform this sort of genotype-phenotype correlation as well. Right, absolutely. So would you mind talking through one or two examples from, from your work at Aparito? I know you've worked with the, the French company that you mentioned earlier. What, what did that project involve and, and what were you able to do? Yeah, so actually that one was a sort of a unique one in the fact that we mainly worked as regulatory advisors to support them in an EMA qualification of that wearable device or the parameter that was generated by the device. So it's quite right. important to distinguish that it was sort of the uh, stride velocity centile that was actually qualified by the regulator, not necessarily the device itself. Um, and so, you know, we were able to collaborate with the clinicians to see the study data um, and propose it to the regulators in a way uh, that had the qualification for considering it um, as a secondary endpoint at this time, but also with a clear indicator from the regulator of what additional data they would need to, uh, you know, see it being moved to a more uh, primary endpoint uh, basis. Right. So I guess there's a whole set of challenges here around even just getting regulators to recognize that this is a this is a viable way to measure disease progression yeah but interestingly it's not the regulators that are most risk averse here the regulators have for quite some time been asking for new more innovative right. ways to monitor the problem has been um, and it's one of my major frustration if you look at how much money we're investing in you know, amazing technology such as gene-based uh, gene and cell-based therapies, CAR-T, you know, fantastic innovation. And yet when it comes to the proportion of investment and validating new outcomes to, to measure the effect of those, it's tiny, you know, and I can't understand myself the logic of investing so much money in developing a new therapy to bring it to clinical trials 
but not even considering the the kind of matched or relevant uh, validation of an endpoints to go with that. And if you look at Actimayo and their work in developing uh, that wearable device in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you know, the, the majority of that work was actually supported and driven by the patient group community themselves and key opinion leaders. And so, you know, there is, I think, uh, um, you know, a sort of real appetite by the regulators to, to get these things come through, to have early co-development with patient groups. But there is risk aversion from the pharmaceutical companies in adopting more innovative study designs um, for their precious sort of assets, if you like, that's, you know. So is it sort of a, maybe a a conservatism where they, they're more concerned about something maybe going wrong and, and not getting approved because the, the new measure isn't, uh, is as well understood or validated. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, for sure. And you know that I certainly would not be advocating to to be reckless and and use the completely invalidated uh, endpoint for for a clinical trial. But you know, we've now seen enough experience of validated biomarkers and how you go about investing in validating those biomarkers that we could actually be applying the same approach, the same methodology uh, to validating other measures in a way that we can bring them into the study design much, much earlier. So how, how do you, when you start a project with, um, with a patient group or with a, with a researcher or pharmaceutical company, how do you go about actually designing the measure? Do you do you run focus groups with patient organizations or, or patients themselves? Do you draw off of body of research from academic or, or pharmaceutical researchers? Or how do you actually go about saying, you know, from, from we know that there's a better way to do this using technology to actually developing the technology, whether it's wearable or a mobile device or, or whatever it is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it varies. Uh, you know, it depends a lot on... So, for example, our work with the International Gaucher Alliance, which is a very, you know, big, well, well very well-established, well-informed patient group, um, has involved a lot of patient group, um, sorry, focus groups, in-depth interviews, uh, online surveys, uh, because the patient group was able to support and facilitate that. Um, other patient groups, you know, they tend to be slightly smaller if they're early on. And so they don't necessarily have the same um, sort of resource or an infrastructure to support right. that. So we do slightly smaller involvements. But, you know, it, it's it's absolutely mandatory today to to get that early input for sure. Yeah, it, it, I mean, when you were just talking about the concern about trials failing it made me think of an example we had a nick Soro on a previous episode of the podcast who's part of a large group of of people who've recently had a successful clinical trial for rare disease called aku and and they found that an early trial actually did fail in in a for the same molecule failed because the endpoint they were measuring was was just really not reflective of of improvement of the disease and and they developed a score to measure improvement of the disease and and it's um you know as a direct result they've had a a successful clinical trial and and I think the other lesson from that story 
is the the involvement of so many different parties, which it sounds like you embrace as well. It's not just a, a company or a pharmaceutical company on their own, but patient groups, patients themselves, new technologies coming in, and, and ultimately the pharmaceutical companies that have the expertise to develop the treatments and, and then bring them to market. Yeah, it, it has to be a multi-stakeholder um sort of input and and you know i would i would go further and say we need to give patients uh and the patient community the support and the um resources to lead the way on this because the, you know we can obviously advise on regulatory strategy validations qualification you know but actually you know we should be there to be advisory and funding resources on this uh to enable patients to do it not which unfortunately happens sometimes you you know do it a bit more tokenism that we've already charged charged along the way and then we turn to the patients to say well do you want an apple or an orange and they go well actually i'd really right. like a banana so why didn't you offer me yeah <laughs> you know, two so, years ago before you started <laughs> exactly um so so that's where i think it's still uh, a bit of work to do in, in, in changing a bit of mindset on that. Do, do you think also your approach can be used in determining whether treatments are, are working or are cost effective after a treatment's already been approved? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking in the UK, for example, there's a, you know, there's, a, there's a number of expensive drugs that are coming on the market and it seems like the NHS needs better ways to ensure that, that they're they're getting value for what they're paying for is this also an area that you that you're thinking about or working on where you say after a child has had a a treatment can we you know can we work with the family or monitor the progress in some way to make sure that if the the government's going to pay a million pounds for for a potentially transformative treatment that we actually really understand how um you know how this is impacting the the life of the child and the family yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. But, uh, you know, just to, to be clear, I, to go back to the to the point I was trying to make about the choice of endpoint of outcome earlier, by selecting the wrong endpoint or outcome for the clinical trial, you're setting yourself on a pathway right. which takes you further and yeah. further away from this question. And that's where in, in these study designs, if we understood what was important to patients right from the beginning, and yes, you know, the regulators have a very clear mandate to be evaluating efficacy and safety. And the reimbursement agencies have a very clear mandate to be evaluating effectiveness and value. But actually, that those two things aren't completely, you know, mutually exclusive. If you could consider those things in one right at the beginning, again, patient sort of driven then you know we would have far better data and understanding collected through the initial clinical trial study designs by the time it came to the regulator and it shouldn't then have to be a oh let's panic we don't have the right data for right. our EHTA application now because we hadn't thought about it till now do you feel like there's a, a lot of support from uh, governments in, in the UK and, and Europe to push towards this kind of technology? Is, is that a you know, champion sort of in your corner of um, helping you to, to get these things to market faster and, and to reshape it this way? I wouldn't say there's a, I mean, it's a difficult one. I think 
you know, the NHS, but also like a lot of healthcare providers around the world, I don't think it's unique to the UK at the moment, are really struggling uh, to provide the healthcare that's required for all the different, you know, kind of health requirements of today from, you know, preventative medicine to vaccinations to, you know, resistance to antibiotics to neglected diseases that are now global health impacts not sort of developing world neglected disease impact that we we currently think of them are um and so and then we have a very aging population and so healthcare providers are having to go through a really difficult time in balancing their um uh you know spending um and yes they are always looking for for solutions to manage that but it's a difficult time for them to manage the sort of day-to-day firefighting they're experiencing today and looking after today's patients versus the investment for future ones and um that's where i think the, the the two kind of conflict i think Right. Yeah. It's, it has to save money immediately. It can't just save mm-hmm. money in the long term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do, do you see any, any kind of solution to this insight? I mean, it seems like every year the, the concerns about rising costs, certainly in the US and, and, and here in the UK as well, um, seem to get worse and worse. Are, are, we, are we headed for some kind of crisis and then we'll have to figure out how to reset? Or do you see um, you know, do, do you see some kind of turnaround or, or solution on the horizon? I mean, sadly, I, 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 I worry uh, that we're more likely to see a bit of a, a crisis before we see resolution right. uh, on this space. Um, you know, it is difficult to see. We know that we've got 7,000 rare diseases and the number growing every day or, you know, and yet we've only got, you know, in Europe, I think 170 odd drugs now on the market. So only 5% of the rare disease community that we know or have, have got treatments available at the moment. And at the same time, we know that it's not sustainable to fund the currently one available, let alone consider drug access and support for the others. And so the orphan regulations and the incentivizations linked to it have been, you know, successful in getting pharmaceutical companies interested in this space. But let's, you know, let's not be sort of naive and think that they are investing in rare disease because of... uh, (laughs) philanthropic reasons they're also there for profit um and this profit margin without the transparency and and the demonstration of you know value is is not sustainable um certainly not in the current global kind of climate and political uncertainty um and so i do think it's it's quite a an uncertain future for this area um that that needs to to really see it as a societal global issue and not a you know dog eat dog kind of future yeah absolutely there's this um and a lot of people have probably heard of moore's law which is the the idea that computing power gets faster and, and cheaper by a factor of two every year and a half or so. And, and I've heard the opposite. It's just called E-Room's Law, which is the cost of drug development doubles every 
uh, every two or three years. So it's, uh, it's, it's unsustainable in, in that sense. So I, mm-hmm. I know there are other approaches out there, drug repurposing to take things that have already been approved and, and try them out in, in new conditions where we already know it's safe. It seems like this is an area where groups like yours could, could make a really big impact because if you're working with the patient groups early to understand what is success look like and you're able to take something that is already proven safe and, and try to accelerate it through the development process. Is this an area that you're, that you're already working in or, or thinking about? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I wrote a paper with Professor David Hughes on, on the opportunity here for repurposed drugs to be developed and to offer a, a, an opportunity for the rare disease community in an affordable way. But, you know, sadly, you still have very aggressive pharmaceutical companies that then jump on this and rebrand them in an orphan drug and charge them back to the same community at, you know, 10, 50, 60% higher than they were when they were available in a different format. So even that as an approach sadly gets sort of capitalized for profit making purposes. Um, And again, you know, in the rare disease space, there are examples where, um, you know, generically available kind of i call them cheap drugs were available and then put through the orphan regulation process and and now are not affordable to the same community that supported the development of them so there it seems like the the payers the nhs in the uk or or insurance companies or healthcare providers in the us have have to step in at some point right to to make a, make it fair for everyone, right? It's, I don't think anyone would argue that the pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be able to make money because they're doing a, you know, an, an, an important and expensive and, and risky part of the process. But equally, if it's, uh, as you say, if it remains unsustainable, then it's not doing anyone any good. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you have a slightly more optimistic and favorable view of the pharmaceutical <laughs> industry in that regard. You know, I think the, the European Commission have had a, a big workshop on this this issue in terms of the incentivization for pediatrics and orphan drugs. I mean, the pediatric regulation had very different incentivization and yet has not seen the same success as orphan drugs right. um, because of that. And you know, who would argue that pediatric health is not something that as a society we should be investing in. Um, and, you know, th- th- there are, I think, uh, you know, global uh, political issues that governments need to, to collaborate with globally, because at the end of the day, drug development, and we live in a globalized world is a global issue to sort of make make this uh you know a fair balance and yes you know profit but profit that's sort of transparently kind of understood um on margin that really reflect what the r&d investment that has been done by the pharma company itself not necessarily done by government funded hospitals and government funded grants and then acquired by pharma company to take the last last leg if you like yeah you you make a really good point there that it's often difficult to track exactly how much of the investment was made by each of the different parties because so many of these innovations go through many years or decades of of government funding in the form of grants and other sorts of things 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not to say that equally pharmaceutical companies have assets that fail and they've invested in, you know, five, 10 years of phase one, two, three toxicology formulation development. And then, you know, it fails in, in phase three, as we know, for, for a large majority of these. But, um, you know, it's, it's still um, not always... Um, you know, uh, justifiable and transparent in a way that we can see it to be sustainable. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think also we're, I'm, I'm, we need a model as well that doesn't just incentivize treatment after we're sick, but, uh, that incentivizes maintenance of health in some way. And, and I know it's a, tr- it's, it's very tricky to think about from a business model perspective of, of who would pay for that and how you go about doing it. But it, it just seems like the, the idea that if we take a common condition like uh, diabetes or or cardiovascular disease more generally, that the vast majority of of the money is spent uh, treating people after they have the condition, not in prevention or, or early detection, because the money is in treatment, not in these other areas. So some, mm-hmm. I know some in in the U.S., for example, there are innovative healthcare providers like um, like Kaiser Permanente, I think, is an example where they they are both the healthcare provider and the payer so they can make some um they they can make some drastic changes to to focus on prevention because at the end of the day it's them who's they're not being paid based on the number of butts in hospital beds or mm-hmm. they're, being, they're they they save they stand to save money that way so I, I wonder if some of these kind of models will start to emerge as well mm-hmm. yeah no i i you know, I think that there is an, an exciting opportunity to, to bring new models. And I think, you know, across business everywhere, people are now thinking, you know, what used to be called the triple bottom line or CSR or sustainable thing. You know, those those uh, aspects, uh, you know, in a way we have climate change and limited resources, we, we need to come up with more. Right. Uh, interesting um, sort of uh, sustainable, ethical, longevity kind of approaches. approaches. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I I know we're running short of time here. Just, just to close out, is there, there, if you had a, you had the ear of, uh, I don't know if any government official can, can do any of this right now, but if you had, let's call it a magic wand to, to make a change in the industry, um, that you think would Im- would improve things for the better. What would you What would you try to do? Um, my my passion, of, of course, is to is to invest far more in early development of patient centric outcome measures that really right. reflect what's important to patients. So, to sort of not leave these questions till Too so late. late in the drug development pathway, and to really prioritize putting them very early as a priority. Um, you know, as early as we're doing the toxicology programs, as early as we're doing the manufacturing programs, you know, let's get the patients to be setting the research agenda, identifying the outpoint, out, outcomes that are important to them and, and validating them very, very early in collaboration with the regulators and the reimbursement agencies. Absolutely. Well, that, that sounds uh, like something we can all get behind. <laughs> Excellent. Great. If only it was that easy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If only it was that easy. But I know something we're working a lot on. It's definitely something I can tell you're working on. So hopefully we can make some progress. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Where can people keep track of you if they want to follow? You're on Twitter. 
your yeah so aparito health uh on twitter and uh, my personal handle ellen have davis um so yes quite active on twitter as the general updates uh but also um our website uh which we are about to launch a very new new updated one so come back Excellent. in a week or so uh to see what what else we're up to um right. in this space Excellent. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Ellen. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.